We read from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Book of Matthew, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Passage of scripture we look at every year. And of course, there's a lot of things to see in this particular passage of scripture when we look at the continuation of the Christmas story. But one thing we need to understand is this the working of God is continuous. And we read through these passages of Scripture, and we tend to go from one event to the other to the other. And sometimes we need to stop and realize this is not just a series of isolated events, but the working of God is continuous. And the events that surround this whole episode with the wise men from the East are directly directly connected with what we're doing as a church. And you have to look real close to see how the pieces of the puzzle fit together and how the events are connected. And then you realize what happened there is we're still dealing with the same series of events as we do our work with the church today. How's it connected? Well, let's look. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Would you stand as the scriptures read, please? Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and how connected your word is through the centuries. We're included in that connection. We thank you for that. Help us to see the connection. Help us to see our place in this plan of yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Of course, we're dealing with the visitors from the east, the wise men. And of course, as has been mentioned before, a lot of times the manger scenes present the wise men along with the shepherds at the manger. But we realize as we look at this passage of scripture, the, the wise men came along 
quite a bit later. They were already in a house. And we do know, of course, in the following narrative, it could have been as much as two years later, although I seriously doubt that because with, given the personality of, of Herod, we understand that he was prone to exaggeration when it came to protecting his turf. But we do know it was after they had already left the manger. Of course, the manger scene is a composite of all that happened there. The wise men a lot of times are, are shown at the manger scene. But this is quite some time later. They are already in a house. Who are these visitors from the east? We've looked at this before just about every year. They came probably, as scholars look at this term, magi. They came from Babylon. Babylon is some 500 to 1,000 miles away, given to what border you look at, and these men were high-ranking scholars. They held high positions in the cabinet of the king. They were teachers. They were advisors to royalty. In the book of Daniel, if you remember, the king was troubled by his dreams, and he called his wise men together. These were the same, not the same men, but of the same group. Uh, they were very respected. They were close to this king. They were experts in sciences, including astrology. They knew what should be in the sky, and they knew what was different. They had seen something different. You know, uh, people who try to explain away the Bible and that sort of thing said, ha, what they saw was Jupiter and Saturn all lined up and so forth. They knew about these things. They're the ones who wrote the book about the patterns of the planet, so to speak. They knew about these things. They knew this was something special, something different. And they followed it till they came to Jerusalem. And so we have the visitors from the east. And here's another person in the cast of players, a troubled politician. Now it says here that Herod was the king. Obviously we realize he wasn't the king because we understand the Roman Empire was in full force so we're dealing with the fact he was not the king as the ultimate king. He was a governor. He was more like a regional leader and he was appointed to his position. So we understand he was he was uh, Definitely part of the bureaucracy. He was a politician. He was appointed to govern most of the region of Israel, especially in and around Jerusalem. Now, one thing of history reveals is the fact that he was a very ambitious man. If a little power was good, a lot of power was better. All the power was best. That's exactly what he wanted. He was an ambitious man, and he was insanely jealous he murdered or had assassinated family members, brothers, because he was worried they might, not that they did, they might threaten his position on the throne. So any suspicion, any hint of somebody that might encroach on his turf, he wanted to wipe them out. He wanted to get them out of the way. He was a troubled politician. He was a very corrupt and evil man in all ways. Now this man is troubled. Here's this man. Connect with it, his personality. He was ambitious. He was suspicious. He was jealous. 
And now all these men come from the east. We call them, of course, the three wise men, but there were three gifts. It was probably several men. It was a whole cabinet full of people because it was their, the actual men, but they traveled with this royal entourage. It was a diplomatic uh, visit. So he's seeing this big caravan of, of very important people coming his way. And of course, he's feeling pretty good about himself. And so they come and knock on the door. He introduces himself. Hey, I'm Herod, and I'm governor of this whole region. Yeah, 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 but we want to see the real king. Now, to anybody, that would be trouble. But with Herod, it was bad trouble because they were asking for the real king. Now, one word got him troubled, and that was this. We were looking for him born king of the Jews. Now, he had this position, but he was very much aware this position was granted to him by somebody with more power. He knew he was just appointed to this position. And he also knew the very utmost importance in the Hebrew world of lineage. And the fact that the one that would be recognized the king would have to have lineage back to royalty, which would be David. He knew he didn't have that. Because history would reveal that Herod wasn't even actually of the Jewish lineage. He came from the Edomites. And so when they said, we want to see him that was born king of the Jews, he knew that he was totally disqualified. That as powerful as he was, he was left out of the picture. And it says that he was troubled. Now, this word troubled is really an under statement. The word troubled in the original Greek means this. He was agitated. He was terrified. He was furious. And when Herod was troubled, the whole town was troubled. They had seen what he could do. They could see how he could murder people just at the drop of a hat. They were all, all terrified because Herod was terrified. You see, despite his political power, he knew that the visitors acknowledged somebody else as the real king, and he couldn't deal with it. And he couldn't deal with it. So his response to that, as with everything else, was murder. This situation would repeat itself over and over and over again in history, where Caesar saw these people acknowledging someone else as their true king couldn't deal with it. The emperor had Christians murdered, tortured, imprisoned, because for all of the power that he had, he had this group of people said, yeah, right, but we're going to worship the real king. We're going to worship the true king. And then that would happen again. Stalin. Ho Chi Minh. Kim Il-sung. Russia. China. Korea. We see all of these, the first thing they wanted to do when they came to power is to eliminate Christianity and to ban the Bible. 
And isn't that quite interesting? Because what they would say is, this is not true. This is not real. Isn't it amazing that they would spend so much time fighting against something that they said was not true? But it obsessed them. It obsessed them. Every single one of these rulers. They, they couldn't leave it alone. And they spent their lives fighting against someone they said didn't exist. Because all these people acknowledge the fact that, yeah, we realize you are where you are, but we're going we're gonna to acknowledge the real king in our lives. And you know, it still hadn't changed. Even in our country, we have Christianity, the church, and Christ, always attacked by prominent people, comedians, entertainment, philosophers, scholars, all of them always railing against the fact that there's nothing to all this. But they spent all this time, all this time, continually resisting what they say is not there. You see, Herod was no different from all the rest. God had something to say about this. Look in Psalms chapter 2, verse 1. Psalms chapter 2, verse 1. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. You know, another word for anointed is Christ. One of the nations rage, and the word nations here means, of course, all those that did not worship the the God of the Hebrews at that time. And the rulers plot a vain thing. You know what vain means? Empty. Totally empty. Saying, let us break their bonds in pieces against the Lord and his anointed. Here's the reality of it. Their opposition. All these politicians, all these dictators, all the naysayers, all the comedians who scoff at Christianity and all the entertainers who tend to, to uh, scorn all things decent and moral. All that opposition, all their resistance only verifies the lordship of Christ. It only legitimizes and acknowledges the existence of God because they continue to fight against something they say doesn't exist, but their very fight actually acknowledge he is very real. A troubled politician. Now all of this, this whole situation is evidence of the sovereignty of God. When I say sovereignty, that God is total ruler over the universe. Quite unlike Herod, who was just a little appointed guy over the uh, province of Israel, quite unlike Caesar, 
who called himself the king of the world at the time, but the world's an awful small place when you compare it to the entire universe because God is sovereign over nature. The men came from the east. They didn't say, hey, we heard this rumor that there is a born king of the Jews. No, they said this. Where is he that's born king of the Jews? We saw his star. His star. So we understand God was controlling the actual heavens. And this star appeared when Jesus was born. Last week, you remember we talked about the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And it's talking about a very bright light. It remained in some way to guide the wise men. And they knew that that was his star. Now we understand this is not a, a new thing. There's a prophecy involved with this. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, a star will rise in Judah and a scepter out of Israel. That's back in Numbers. That's 1,400 years earlier. In Isaiah chapter 60, it would say the Gentiles will come to your light, not just some star. It was his star. It was his star that appeared. Now, somebody might say, well, it was just a, it was just a, a normal thing that shows up every several hundred years or so forth. Well, even at that, 1,400 years earlier, God had predicted that whatever it is would show up and it would guide them to Christ. It would be his star. And God showed his rulership over nature. And these guys who knew nature inside and out they knew this was not some ordinary event. And then God's sovereignty over history. Now we look at these guys, these wise men. They had come a long way. And it says they saw his star again after they talked to Herod. And it says they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. That's like that's the happiest they had ever been. The happiest they had ever been. And they came to the house where he was and they fell down and worshipped him. I believe we could say that was the best day of their life. The best day of their life. And the best day of their life that day was connected with the worst of times for an entire nation hundreds of years before. How's that connected? Well, it shows God's sovereignty over history. You see, they knew that there was a promised king of the Jews that would be born. They knew that there would be a star to signal his arrival. Where is this information stored at? Only one place. Scriptures. How would scriptures, scrolls, let me tell you, scrolls and scriptures are valuable because when you read through the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, every single letter was hand copied on a scroll. Every single letter. Scrolls were valuable. 
Scrolls were precious. A lot of investment went to these scrolls, and they were stored in very secure places. And they were considered, of course, valuable treasures for the people of, of Israel. How would the scrolls, those precious valuable scrolls, find their way from Jerusalem all the way over to Babylon? It's not just the miles that's, that's of course, the problem. This was enemy territory. How would the scrolls containing the message of the promised Messiah and the star of his appearing, how would they show up over there? Well, the reason they're in Babylon was the worst of times for Israel. 2 Kings chapter 24. 2 Kings chapter 24. Second Kings chapter 24, verse 8. Second Kings chapter 24, verse 8. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehestah, daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem. The city was besieged. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, his officers, went out to the king of Babylon in the eighth year, took him prisoner. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, the king of Israel, made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. He carried away into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains, all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen and smiths, None remained except the poorest people of the land. He besieged Jerusalem, and he took out of the house of the Lord all of the treasures and took them to Babylon. You know what was included in the treasures? The scrolls, the scriptures were carried away over to Babylon, and everyone except the poorest of the land were carried to Babylon. You know who that would include? The priests and the scribes and the teachers of the law. The worst of times. All of this would carry to Jerusalem. Up till now, worship in Jerusalem was focused in that one place, the temple, with the sacrifices and so forth. Now they're all over in the land of Babylon. And historians will mention, of course, since the temple was destroyed anyway, and these people were carried away there for decades at a time, a system of worship began to develop called the synagogue. In every place where a cluster of Jews was together, in every town they were together, there would be a synagogue. 
Since there was no temple and no altar and all this had been destroyed, the focus of worship shifted from sacrifice to the teaching of scriptures and the study of scriptures. Ezekiel was one of those who was carried away. And Ezekiel says in his in his writing in chapter 11, and it says very clearly in his introduction that he was by one of the rivers of Babylon. So he was carried away. He was a prophet that was carried away. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 14, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of the Israel said, get far away from the Lord, this land has been given to us for a possession. Therefore I say, thus says the Lord, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. A little sanctuary. That little sanctuary was the synagogue. In every little cluster had the synagogue. We also know that not only Daniel was carried away, but there were three guys. And uh, D Ezekiel was carried away, and Daniel and his three companions who had become Shadrach, Meshach, and they were carried away. So you have Ezekiel over there who was a prophet, Daniel who was a prophet, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were also <coughs> prophets, and they were all carried away too. So you have all those in the land of Babylon, and you have all these synagogues, and you have copies of the scripture that are carried to Babylon. And here is what happened. Jewish scholars who have never left their homeland now face events that force them into another country. Along with them went the message of God. And because of that message of God that went with them in the worst time of their life, 600 years later, some of the most powerful men in the world came to Jerusalem saying, we're looking for the real king so we can worship him. Because of events out of their control that forced them into another life situation and forced God's word to go to another country, now you have non-Hebrew from a pagan society coming to say, we want to find Jesus and we want to worship Jesus. This pattern would repeat itself 35 years later after the wise men had gone home. In Acts chapter 8, you know the story. It says at that time a great persecution arose against the church that was at Jerusalem. They were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. And it says, and therefore all that were scattered went everywhere preaching the word of the Lord. And then chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, 
preaching the word to no one but Jews only, but some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the non-Jews. It's called the Hellenists or the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. Just like what happened years before, there was a persecution. Stephen was martyred. There was a persecution of the church, and everybody was scattered. They didn't ask for it. They would have never planned it. They would have never gone to these places. But what happened is you had all of these believing Christians, would be five or 6,000 of them at least, based on the book of Acts, all clustered in Jerusalem. And then God scatters them all over the world like a sack of seeds, just like the Jews of old when they were carried away to Babylon. What did they carry with them? They carried the message of the Messiah. And like the Jews over in Babylon, the message of the Messiah reached the non-Jewish Gentile people. And of course, the book of Isaiah, it records this. Gentiles will come to your light. Chapter 60, verse 3. We read that as these wise men come into the star. But did you know 35 years later it happened again? Jesus, of course, had preached, I'm the light of the world. Anybody that comes to me will never walk in darkness. And these Christians who are all huddled up in Jerusalem are now scattered, and they carry with them the message of Jesus. And now you have Gentiles coming to his light. Now, what's that have to do with us? That plan to reach the nations with the message of Jesus, the anointed Messiah, has not changed since then. It has not changed since the days of Babylon. It has not changed since the days of Herod the king. It has not changed since the days of the early church. God's plan is he's sovereign over nature. He will use the events of history to work out his plan to reach the entire world world with the gospel and he makes a prediction about that just like he predicted the gentiles would come to the light over in the book of revelation john said and i saw a throne and around the throne people from every nation every tongue every race every tribe they were all around the throne and they were singing praises to god how'd they ever get reached with the gospel We're a part of that plan. You see, the plan of Jesus, the plan of God, is to reach the world with the message of salvation. You're involved in it one of two ways. First of all, if you don't know that message of salvation, this is all about you, reaching you with the message that we're sinners, lost without Christ, cannot save ourselves. But the good news, there'll be all people, is there's a Savior that is born, and his name is Jesus Christ. If you're here and you know that truth, you're involved too. Why? We're the ones to carry the treasure to the nations and to carry that message. How do you fit into the plan? Find your place in God's plan. But see, it's all interconnected. As I said before, as we introduced the sermon, the working of God is continuous. What was happening then in Jerusalem and Bethlehem still happening now. And God wants you be a part of it. Where are you in God's plan? Something you need to do to make it right with him? 
Let's stand and sing and we'll make it right.